0: Morning, and you may be seated. You will find in uh, your bulletin uh, a sheet like this, and this is your study notes for the day and an outline. If that helps you to follow along, then uh, I would encourage you to take advantage of that. Well, our gospel readings for the past three weeks uh, are from John chapter 6, with Jesus beginning there at the beginning of the chapter feeding the 5,000. And later, The crowd, seeing Jesus a day or so later, asked for an encore. And why wouldn't they? Free lunch. And what follows in this lengthy chapter is often referred to as the bread of life discourse, a crucial teaching in our Lord's ministry in which he offers them not bread, but offers himself as the bread of life, eternal life, which, as you'll hear me say several times today, is not just Sunday when they die, but here and now. If, if they will come to him and follow him. And we find several recurring themes throughout this lengthy chapter. Let me just read through some of the, the passages of scripture for you and, and, and let you mark those. I've, I've listed them in your notes. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And then from this morning's that we just heard read, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Well, that's pretty clear, isn't it? Jesus' words are, in his own words, spirit and life. That is to say, they are the means by which the Holy Spirit gives us life. Now, that implies something very important about us that we need to understand and it's taught clearly throughout the pages of scripture that is that you and I come into this world spiritually dead we are we are born in, in sin and we, we are sinners from birth now you and I are hopefully not as bad as we can be at any point in our lives but I can assure you of one thing you and I are all as bad off as we can be we are spiritually dead, hopeless, helpless before a holy God and this is why holy scripture And Jesus' words are very, very clear on this, that Jesus is not just one option among many options. He's not even the best option among all the other options. He is the only one who has the solution to our problem. Because if we are spiritually dead, who can give us eternal life? Who can make us alive? As Peter said, you have the words of life. And yet, in his day, many people turned back and stopped following him because these sayings were pretty hard sayings there in John chapter 6 and thus he asked the twelve, do you want to go away as well? and Peter's response of course is, where else would we go, you and by application you alone have the words of eternal life did not our Lord himself make that very clear throughout his teaching and extremely clear in many cases, John 14 6 Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I realize in today's world that seems very intolerant. It seems very uh, kind of medieval and, and, and strange to many people's ears. We, we, we hear that from, uh, from all different aspects of our culture itself. Well, I would just simply say this to someone who says that, someone says that to you. Your, your problem is not with me. The problem is with Jesus and the apostles and their teachings, because that is clearly what they taught. Peter himself, filled with the Holy Spirit, just a matter of weeks later, to the very leaders who convinced Pilate to crucify Jesus, says this, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, these claims by our Lord and by the apostles, and that I repeat to you this morning, demand a response. They demand a verdict. You see, the Christian faith, as summarized in our creeds, is not a collection of ideas to be evaluated. It is not a philosophy that we can debate and discuss. No, it is a set of historical truth claims about the person and work of Jesus in particular that demand a response. You either accept them or you don't. You either believe that they are true or you believe that they are lies and myths and fables. Now by historical, I don't mean historic. I need to make sure that you get this clearly what I'm saying. Historic just means momentous eventful. Buildings can be said to be historic such as Constitution Hall or uh, battlefields are sometimes historic places that where history was made and important things happened. People can be referred to as historic. But historical means actually occurring in history. So the truth claims of the gospel are this, that these things actually happened. By embracing them and accepting them, this is what the Bible calls repentance and faith. that's what we're going to speak about this morning really two sides of the same coin if you will they're not identical but but sometimes we're told to repent sometimes we're told to believe sometimes we're told to repent and believe two sides of the same coin whoever comes to me jesus says shall never hunger that's repentance coming to jesus we're going one way and we turn the other way and we turn and come to jesus whoever believes in me shall never thirst and that's faith in acts chapter 20 verse 21 Paul tells the leaders at Ephesus as he bids them farewell that that he went about in their midst, and I'm reading from Acts chapter 20, teaching you in public from house to house testifying to both Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God, you see we turn towards God, and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1 speaks of our foundation as that of a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. So let's think about repentance just for a moment. Repentance is not a one-and-done deal. Some people think, okay, I got saved, I repented, and I got saved, and that's it, my ticket's punched, I'm good to go, okay, and the rest is whatever. Well, it's not a one-and-done deal. Let me illustrate. August the 9th, 1974 was a momentous day in the history of this country. That's the day that President Richard Nixon resigned as the President of the United States. I remember very clearly sitting in our little apartment in Hollywood, Florida, watching the first man that I voted for and that I actually believed was telling the truth admit that he had lied to us all. It still still angers me to this day to even think of it. But but that, of course, was part of the Watergate scandal and one of the one of the guys, one of the plumbers, as they were called, one of the bad guys, was a guy named G. Gordon Liddy, an ex-FBI man. Who did over four years in prison for his part. actually got a 20-year sentence because he refused to cooperate. He was totally unapologetic, totally unrepentant over what they did. So he served four years. Chuck Colson was one of the others, and he also went to prison. He became a Christian there. And some of you will recall Chuck Colson. He was a great man. He started a prison ministry that is still vibrant and, and doing great stuff to this day. Well, Colson once asked his agnostic friend G. Gordon Liddy if he had seen the light. Liddy said I'm not even looking for a switch. Like his hero, the philosopher Frederick Nietzsche, he exercised his will to the point, as Colson puts it, where it was stronger than anything he confronted. In fact, his autobiography is one word, will. That's the title of his, his autobiography. But after prison he started attending a Bible study, as he puts it, just to Cover all the bases, just to make sure he wasn't leaving anything out here. And he eventually became a Christian. And he describes his conversion as a rush of reason. A rush of reason as he realized that Jesus was indeed who history says he was. That he was who he claimed to be. And he later told his old friend Colson, and this this is a great illustration of repentance, a great definition. Now the hardest thing I have to do every single day is try to decide what God's will is rather than what is my will. What does Jesus want, not what does Gordon want? I have an almost 57-year history of doing what I want, what my will wants, and I have to break out of that habit into trying to do the will of God. Now, beloved, that's repentance. We simply come to Jesus and say, even as he said to the Father before he went to the cross, not my will, but thy will be done. And so we don't really sometimes speak of, well, you need to repent of this particular sin and this particular sin. And because people, well, which ones do I need to repent of? And you get into this whole thing. Listen, that that doesn't get to the root of the problem. The root of the problem is who's in charge. And in repentance, we turn the reins over to the Lord Jesus. We say, it's yours. I'm yours. What is your will? What do you want me to do? Now, that's the repentance side of the coin. Spend a little more time on the faith aspect of it. What is the nature of Of saving faith. What does it mean to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it involves the entire person. It involves your whole being. There are three components. It involves knowledge. Knowledge is the first component. And that's the function of the mind, the intellect. All faith, whether it's biblical, religious faith, any faith, it requires an object. You have to know something. In fact, the Christian faith is sometimes referred to as the faith as in Jude 3, where we're told to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith is the sum total of Christian doctrine. It's what we believe, again, particularly about the person and work of Christ. For Liddy, for G. Gordon Liddy, the beginning of his faith was the realization that Jesus really was and is who he said he is, the Son of God and our Savior. Now what is the source of this information? Well, the source is not of our knowledge is God, specifically God's written word, the Bible, which is made real to us by God himself. So when our Lord asks the 12 early on in his ministry, who do you say that I am? Peter speaks up, not surprisingly. And his reply is, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. To which Jesus replies, dude, way to go. What a smart, astute, clever fellow you are. You've been paying attention. Thank you, Peter. High five. No, that's not what he said. What did he say? Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who was in heaven. And that's what Jesus said in John chapter 6 as well, isn't it? And so it was for Paul, who writes to the Corinthians, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. So that's the first component, knowledge. You have to know. Secondly, believe. Believe. And belief is actually an emotional response, it is a response of the emotions. Thus, Paul also tells this to the Corinthians, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. In other words, you were you are convinced of it, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. And Jesus said the same in last Sunday's reading from John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Why do we come to him? Because we become convinced God is the one who actually does this for us. You see, faith involves not merely agreeing with the claims of the gospel. Not at all. But actually embracing the content, what we know about the person and work of Christ, owning it as being persuaded that those claims are, in fact, true. Now, a good place at this point in the message is to point something out to you in John chapter 6. Jesus never uses the word faith in John chapter 6. He talks about belief, about believing in him. In fact, the verb believe is used nine times in this one chapter alone. Major theme. That's because the Greek language of the New Testament is such that they actually have a word, a verb, for faith. They have a noun for faith, and a form of it is a verbal form of faith. So that they would actually be going around saying, I faith. You faith. He, she, faiths. We can't say that. The closest we have, the nearest verb we have, is belief. So that's, when, when Jesus talks about belief, he is talking about faith. Jesus called on the people he had fed to come to him and believe in him have faith in him because this is what the message of the gospel is all about. And this is the message that the apostles preached as well. That's, that's why Paul can say to the Romans and to us, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is the Lord and believe, where? In your heart, that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. So faith is more than just knowing the content and the claims of the gospel, important as that is. It is being convinced of their truthfulness. Mark Twain, famous American writer, this is the day for mustaches, isn't it? must be something about the mustaches of these guys, I don't know. But, but Mark Twain said that faith is believing something that you know ain't true. It sounds like Mark Twain, doesn't it? Well, that's, that's, that ain't true. Faith is not believing something you know ain't true. That's being deluded. That's, that's kidding yourself. Well, that's Twain's point. Because he didn't, he didn't believe any of that. He was a total agnostic when it came to, to Christianity especially. Well, St. Paul would beg to differ. He says in Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, I know whom I believe. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. That day being the last day. day of judgment. Again, the source of all this, of our being convinced, is God, particularly the Holy Spirit. And then the third component is trust. Trust. That is an act of the will. An act of the will. This is complete reliance upon God. In particular, as I keep saying, the finished work of Christ on our behalf. Paul in chapter 3 of Philippians, his letter to the Philippians, says that his desire is to be found in Him, in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. So my question to you this morning would be simply in light of that. What are you trusting? Who are you trusting? You trust? Is it God doing His part and you doing your part? No. That will never do. Doesn't the Bible say God helps those that help themselves? A lot of people believe that. It's not in the Bible. (laughs) I'm not sure who said that, but it's not in the Bible. No, it's not God doing his part and us doing our part. It is quite the opposite. God helps those who abandon self. That's part of what our repentance is. We we abandon our our efforts completely to somehow please God or or think we can. We abandon our self-centeredness, our self-righteousness. I love the words of the uh, Anglican priest Henry Light, whose great hymn, Abide With Me, describes God as the help of the helpless. That's who God helps. God helps the helpless who have come to the end of self and who know how helpless they are. Another great Anglican hymn, Rock of Ages, Augustus Toplady. lady, I love the line where it says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's trust, and that's saving faith. So when Jesus speaks of eternal life, You need to understand, as I said earlier in the message, that this is not something we get when we die and then ask you here and now and head for the sweet by and by. It is eternal life then, yes, but it's eternal life right now. Let's go back to John 6 for a moment. There were many there who still refused to believe Jesus, besides the twelve, that inner circle, of course. They were called disciples or followers. And our text says that they turned back and no longer walked with him. They no longer followed him. And that's what we're to do as followers of Christ. We walk with him so that we can learn of him and become like him. That is the life of our Lord, the life that God has called us to do. It's not a hobby. It's not a pastime. It's not just some little corner of your life, like you have your social life and your work life and all these other aspects of your life. But rather, it is that which controls and addresses every aspect of your life this way of life is what the Bible calls sanctification. The process of God molding us and shaping us in the image of Christ. I have a rather lengthy quote. It's it's in your notes so just just listen. It's the best description of this that I've come across and I don't know when from not surprisingly James I. Packer one of my favorite theologians. The heart of the Christian message is that the Christ who exhibited himself true and in full humanness according to the Creator's intention, who diagnosed the spiritual deformity that sin brings, the personal disasters to which it leads, died sacrificially to redeem us from sin, rose triumphantly from the dead, and now lives to forgive and remake us and turn us by his power from the travesties of humanity that we really are into authentic human beings who bear his moral image, By his death and the forgiveness that flows from it, he delivers us from God's condemnation. By leading us through his word and scripture into the paths of discipleship and by the transforming work of the Spirit at the level of our instincts, our inclinations, our insights and attitudes. That's what scripture calls our heart. He deprograms us from the game plans of our former ungodly self-centeredness, teaching us to look at everything through his eyes, and literally to live a new life. That's good news, is it not? That's what Jesus came to do. Now, I hope that this has been helpful to you this morning. I truly do. I hope that some of these pieces of the puzzle make a little more sense to you. But I also realize you may have raised some questions for some of you. Some of you might be sitting there thinking, yeah, but what about, or I thought, but and, and maybe you have questions about that. If that's the case... I have three suggestions for you. One, talk to someone. If you have a, a really solid, good Christian friend that you, you know, has uh, is, is, is been a Christian for some time and can help you, talk to that person. Or talk to one of us clergy folks. Lots of clergy folks around this tra- place, right? We'd be glad to help you. We'd love to sit down with you. If you have a question, you know, I can't tell you how many times people have said, I know, I know this is a stupid question. Well, there are no stupid questions. Especially when it comes to your eternal soul. the most vital questions of all. So seek us out. Ask. And thirdly, go to Jesus and ask him. Ask Jesus to show you the truth of what I'm saying this morning. The truth of these. Take these passages of scripture. Go home. Read them. Ask the Lord to make these real to you and to make them sense to you that that perhaps he is drawing you to himself in a way that you've never even experienced. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for the gospel, and I thank you for its clarity. I thank you, Father, for the truthfulness of its claims. I thank you, Father, that that you have led us to this place today to hear this good news, and I pray that we will be faithful in sharing it with others, and I pray that we ourselves will be certain to make, as you say in your word, our calling and our election sure. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.